I'm Barrington Smith Satachit, and this is Words to Drive By, stories to accompany you on whatever commute you're on. How to Write Your Own Biography The way I laugh gives him a headache, Bradley tells me over dinner over meatloaf and potatoes on the courier and Ives dinnerware that I inherited from my mother and have used for the almost thirty years I've been married. Bradley asks me, Is Luelle really so funny you have to screech like a hyena every time she says something? The picture pops into my head of me as a hyena, on a hill howling up at the night sky. Like a frame in the Sunday comics, the howl comes out of my mouth in capital letters the vowels repeating. I do laugh a lot when I talk to Luelle. She's the funniest person I know who's not on TV. I laugh at the television shows, too, the ones I watch during the day when Bradley's at work. I like laughing along with the people in the audience who are laughing, too, though my daughter, Kirsten, who wants to be in the entertainment business someday, reminds me that those shows don't use real audiences. Or, if they do, they add recorded laughter, which is called a laugh track. I wonder if when they record the laugh track, they show something funny to the people they've hired to laugh. I wonder what they're really laughing at. Maybe I'm watching Seinfeld, but the recorded people were watching an episode of All in the Family. It feels like we're all laughing together at Kramer tripping over a coffee table. But the truth is, I'm all on my own. Luelle makes me laugh and laughs right along with me. She and her husband, Harry, took a transfer to Texas last year to be closer to their daughter, Alice, who has a new baby. Since then, Luelle and I only talk on the phone. I'll try to keep it down, I tell Bradley as I clear the table. Chicken bones and globs of mashed potato ride the cobalt blue horses and covered wagons across the plates. It's almost 6.30, so Bradley takes his apple rhubarb crumble into the TV room to watch the weather report. I stay in the kitchen and wash the dishes. If I listen, I can hear the TV, but I don't bother. The weather doesn't concern me so much. Bradley will usually yell to me from his lazy boy recliner anyway, something like, If it's over 90 again tomorrow, that will be the longest heat stretch in May since 1962. After the local news, when he watches the national news and weather, he'll say something like, Well, your Aunt Sally is in for a cold stretch if this jet stream goes through. My Aunt Sally lives in St. Louis. Bradley tracks the weather for St. Louis and for Moorhaven, Florida, which is where his parents retired before they died. Sometimes, when I'm cleaning the kitchen, I'll hear Bradley say, Jesus Christ! That means I should come stand in the doorway and look at crops dying of drought on someone's farm in Minnesota or watch people floating through town on a piece of their house in Louisiana. Poor bastards, Bradley will say, and I'll go back to the kitchen. Tonight there's no floods, but Bradley yells to me, They're expecting some thunderstorms this way, Jeannie. If there's lightning, I don't want you on the phone during the storm. According to him... If lightning hits a phone pole while I'm on the phone, I could be electrocuted. I'm sure he's right, but I can tell he likes the idea of me missing my talk with Luelle, and it makes me mad. 
You'll probably want to unplug the TV in that case, I say. At 7.30, there aren't any thunderstorms yet. Bradley is still watching TV, piled on his chair like a coordinated cushion, so I shut the door and dial Lowell. She picks up. Hey, Jeannie, can you call me back in five? I hang up and wait ten minutes before I call her back. Harry lost his bowling ball, she says. We had quite a search, but we found it. Lowell and I take turns calling each other on Wednesdays at 7.30, which is when Harry goes bowling. He also plays touch football on Saturday mornings at 11 and collects old beer bottles with brewery names embossed in the glass. Those are his hobbies. I can't think of any hobbies that Bradley has other than keeping track of the weather. Almost as soon as Lowell and I start talking, Bradley comes into the kitchen to get a dish of chocolate ice cream. It's Private Selection, which is the house brand at Kroger's where I do most of our shopping. It's a lot cheaper than the other brands, but just as good. He leaves the door open as he walks out so he can listen in. Must not be too worried about that headache, I whisper to Lowell. She laughs. Ah, Jeannie, you are a hoot, she says. That makes me feel good. I don't feel like a hoot too often. Lowell tells me about the cake decorating class she's taking. When Harry and Lowell first moved to Texas, she spent a lot of time helping Alice with the new baby, so she's just now getting acquainted with her town. I'd better make me some friends, she told me when she signed up a few weeks ago. I'll go crazy around here with nobody to talk to. I wouldn't think to say something like that about not having friends or anyone to talk to, but when she says it, it seems perfectly normal. In her cake decorating class, Lowell's been learning to make roses out of frosting. She bought a special little stand that's like a big toothpick with a platform around it. She turns the platform around while squeezing the frosting out of a tube through a special flat tip to make the petals. Then she has to move the rose from the stand to the cake without messing it up. For her last class on Saturday afternoon, everyone was supposed to bring their five best frosting roses. Lowell spent all morning squeezing frosting and moving the roses onto cookie sheets covered with wax paper. It took me three full sheets of roses to get five that I could take to class without embarrassing myself, she says. By that time, I was running late, so I just ran out the door and left everything on the table. I want to ask if the teacher liked her roses, but Lowell's already telling me about coming home after class. I walk in, and there's Harry, all sweaty from football, drinking beer, and eating those frosting roses by scooping them up with potato chips. I let out a shriek before I remember the open kitchen door. I try to laugh more quietly. On the other end of the line, Lowell is laughing too. I say to Harry, you moron, what the hell are you doing? And he looks at me with his mouth full of potato chips and pink frosting, and he says, there wasn't any cake. There wasn't any cake. Can you believe that? I say to him, that's not even normal frosting. It's half Crisco. You're going to have a heart attack, and I'm going to be making roses for your coffin. I have tears in my eyes from laughing so hard. The goofball, Lowell says to me. He had diarrhea for two days.
This morning, after Bradley's gone to work, my daughter Kirsten calls to tell me she's been promoted to store manager at the clothing store where she works. I say I'm real proud of her. Then we talk for a bit, and I tell her about Luelle and the cake decorating class. Kirsten says, That sounds fun. Maybe you should do something like that. Ah, oh, I don't know that that's something I would do. She's quiet for a minute, but then she says, You know, you're still young, Mom. You might want to do some other things besides cook and do laundry for the next 30 years. I'm not sure what she means by that, and I say so. Well, you know for yourself whether you're happy or not, she says. It seems to me that Kirsten is someone who talks a lot about being happy. She says things like, Well, I'm happy with this job for now. Or, We broke up because we weren't making each other happy anymore. Of course I want my daughter to be happy. But when she says these things, I can't help but get a little irritated by how concerned she is about her own happiness. It seems frivolous to use being happy as an excuse to just throw something out the window whenever she doesn't like it. I make a meatloaf for dinner and then go to the basement and take a pile of Bradley's shirts from the dryer to iron. I use the house brand fabric softener sheets from Kroger's. They're just as good as the others. The shirts barely have any static cling. There used to be a lot more laundry. Our son, Tom, played Little League, then basketball in high school, and Kirsten was in the marching band and took ballet. I drove carpools for the kids, and Bradley and I were always going to games and recitals. We talked to other parents. On the way home, we talked about what the other parents said. Back then, some of the mothers had knitting groups or played bridge once a week. I never joined in. I figured we were busy enough. In the evening after dinner, I follow Bradley into the TV room. I say, I'm thinking about taking a class. He looks at me from his recliner. What kind of a class? I don't know. I thought I'd stop by the community center and see what they have. You don't even know what you want to take? I thought it might be a good way to meet people, to talk to, you know. No, I don't know. You're talking to me right now. What is it you've got to say? He waits expectantly for about five seconds before he turns back to the TV, flipping the channels with the remote control. I'd had a wild thought about asking him if he would want to take a class with me. I decide against it. When Lowell calls on Monday, two days early, I know something's up straight away. She doesn't beat around the bush. I went to the doctor today. They think I have cancer. Her voice cracks on the last word. I hold on to the phone with both hands and say how sorry I am and that I'm sure it's going to be okay. After we hang up, Bradley calls from the TV room. What was that all about? I tell him, Jesus Christ, he says with a big sigh, like this will somehow be a huge burden on him. He smacks his lips and shakes his head back and forth. Well, she never took care of herself, that's for sure. Always eating fried food and getting too much sun. The insides of my eyelids start to burn. First of all, it's not skin cancer, it's breast cancer. 
which has nothing to do with the sun. And second, she's not dead, so please don't talk about her like she is. I manage to make it out the door before I start to cry. Upstairs, the bedroom smells like almonds powder and old spice deodorant. My eyes land on the crinkled, empty tubes of zinc oxide ointment on Bradley's dresser and the rubber shower thongs he keeps right beside the bed like it would be too terrible for his feet to touch the floor of his own house. I want to smash something. There are only a few socks in the hamper, but I take them and go downstairs to the basement. I sit on the bottom step, breathing in the smell of fabric softener and picking the flaky plaster off the wall while I think about Lowell. Lowell's surgery is scheduled for the end of the month. She tells me they're going to take the lump and some lymph nodes to check for involvement and then decide what to do next. Three weeks seems like a long time to wait, but Lowell says that's hardly enough time to organize things, to finish her class and let the family know what's going on. The doctors say that after the surgery, she won't be able to use her right arm for a while, so she wants to clean the whole house before she goes in. Do you think I should go down there for a few days? I ask Bradley. To help out? It's a family problem. I think you should just let them deal with it. I can't imagine they want guests in the house right now. On the day of the surgery, Lowell calls me from the hospital, from her bed surrounded by white accordion curtains. I'm about to go to the theater, she says, her voice overly bright. That's what they call the operating room. Doesn't it sound glamorous? and they have these little arrows drawn all over me in magic marker. I look like a road map. Hey, what are you doing today? My list, sitting on the phone table, is written on a skinny tablet with lines and a pre-printed heading that says, To Do. I'm going to the grocery store. Kroger's is having a sale on Hot Pockets, which Bradley sometimes likes for a snack. I'm going to make pork chops for dinner and sew on a button that fell off one of my cardigans. I don't say any of that. Instead, I ask, Are you okay? Yeah. They stuck a wire through my tit. Can you believe that? It hurt like hell. Listen, I won't stay on the phone. Harry's right here. I just thought I'd say hi. I make my voice bright, too, and wish her luck in the theater. After I hang up the phone... There is a lump in my throat that makes it hurt to swallow. The house seems too quiet and loud all at the same time. I can hear the thrum of the freezer, the faint sound of a metal button hitting the walls of the dryer down in the basement. I look at my to-do list, then get my purse and drive to the Kroger's. When I get to the frozen food aisle at the Kroger's, I put two boxes of Hot Pockets in the cart. Then, without even thinking... I take a bunch more and a couple of bags of bird's-eye frozen vegetables. I ask for six pork chops instead of two and four chicken breasts. I get ground round and breadcrumbs for meatloaf and a can of mushroom soup to make a casserole, and then I pick up a stack of disposable food containers. They only have the glad ones, which are more expensive, but I get them anyway. 
When Bradley gets home, the whole house smells like food. The counter is covered with containers that I'm labeling with masking tape and a freezer marker. What's going on here? He asks. I'm going to visit Lowell. You just want to drop everything and run off? That doesn't make any sense, Jeannie. Are you expecting to fly? That'll be an expensive ticket on the spur of the moment. I'm going to drive. I can get there in a day if I start early in the morning. Before he can reply, I say, I'm putting this casserole in the fridge. You should eat that first. All you have to do is warm it up at the temperature that I've written down. Then each morning, you'll need to take one of these containers out of the freezer to defrost. You can put them in the microwave if you want. See, I'm stacking them like this, so you don't end up with the same meat two nights in a row. How long are you planning to stay? He asks. I don't know. I feel him staring at me as I rearrange items in the freezer. I say, We're having pork chops and applesauce tonight. Do you want a cooked vegetable or just salad? He looks away from me into the hallway. Salad's fine. I'm going to go see if I can catch the weather report. His steps sound heavy as he walks to the TV room. In the morning, Bradley wakes up early, checks the oil on my car and the pressure on the tires. I guess it will make the trip okay, he says. You have plenty of minutes on your phone? I say that I do. Well, he says, it doesn't look like you'll be getting any rain. He leans in and kisses me. His morning stubble brushes my face. Be careful, he says, then turns away quickly and goes into the house. I don't drive on the interstate often. The entrance ramp makes me nervous. But once I get on the road, I feel better. The farther away I get, the lighter I feel. My oldie station is still coming in on the radio, and I turn it up. I pass trees and billboards and old-fashioned signs at truck stops. After a couple of hours, the only stations that come in are country. I don't generally listen to country songs, and I'm surprised at how the country singers sing about everything. They sing about old friends and old boyfriends, about parents and kids. I think about my own parents and husband and kids. At first, I want to cry, but then I feel this kind of calm. Like everyone is in a song, and I'm just driving along, listening to it. It's late when I get in, so I check into the Red Roof Inn. I call Bradley to let him know I arrived okay, and then I call Harry. Hey, Jeannie, he says. She won't be home till tomorrow. You want me to have her give you a call? I say, I'm here. The next day I drive to the hospital with Harry. It's the big medical center about an hour and a half from where they live. Lowell is pale and ashy and can't lift her arm, but she smiles when she sees me. Jeannie, it'll be good to have you around. She wiggles her fingers on the mattress and I take a hold of them. I move into the extra bedroom they have set up for when family comes to visit. Harry goes back to work and I help with the housework and drive Lowell around town. The glands under her arm keep filling up and need to be drained, so we travel to the hospital every couple of days for that. On the other days, Lowell's daughter, Alice, comes to visit with the baby. 
We drink iced tea and try to chat about normal things. The baby, Lucy, is the most frequent topic for conversation. One day, Alice brings her fancy camera and takes pictures of Lowell holding the baby with her good arm. Then I take a picture of all of them, three generations. Later, I find Alice in the kitchen, looking at the pictures on her camera screen and crying. When she sees me, she tries to sniff up her tears. Then she asks, What if Lucy never gets to know her grandma except in these pictures? And starts crying again. The test results from the surgery come in after a week. Harry takes off work to go hear the results with Lowell at the hospital, so I stay behind. I call and leave a message on the machine when I know Bradley's at work. I tell him there's a nice park by Harry and Lowell's house and that we've been going for walks in the evenings. I don't say when I think I'll be heading back. There's not much to do because we've decided to go out to dinner and the house is clean, so I walk to the little library nearby. I look at the novels, but can't concentrate on those little summaries inside the book jackets. I keep wondering what the doctor might be saying to Lowell and Harry and thinking about what Lowell said to me last night. She thanked me again for coming and said that I was a really good friend. She said, Jeannie, even if what I find out tomorrow isn't good news, I think I'm lucky. I love my life. At the library, I moved to the section with the biographies. I don't understand how writers can know what famous people were really thinking or feeling. I flipped through some pages reading about the lives of people who are dead now. Each of them had to make so many decisions in their lives without knowing how anything would turn out. When Marie Curie chose to study uranium, she didn't know she would be famous or that she would die from leukemia. When Nancy Hanks got married, she didn't know her son Abe Lincoln would be president. The biographies occupy an entire section of shelves, which seems like a lot. But when I compare the number of books to the number of all of the people who've ever lived, I realize it's not so many at all. I don't think anyone I know will ever have a biography written about them. Not Lowell or Harry or Bradley. I try to picture the timeline that would be at the front of my biography. It would have little marks for being born, going to school, getting married, moving, and my children being born. In the beginning, my story is not so different from Marie Curie or Nancy Hanks. It's what happens after that makes the difference for biographies. I've never seen a biography about someone shopping at the Kroger's. Back at their house, Harry and Lowell are happy with the news. The cancer hasn't spread to Lowell's lymph nodes, so she doesn't have to take radiation or chemo. They explain to me over chicken enchiladas at their favorite Mexican restaurant that she'll only have to take this drug called tamoxifen. They seem so relieved that at first I think maybe Lowell won't have to have the surgery, but that's not the case. The mastectomy is scheduled for next month. Lowell's sister will be coming to help out, so I tell them I'll leave in a couple of days, as soon as Lowell can drive on her own. On my drive home, I stop in St. Louis to see Aunt Sally, who is almost 80. She doesn't comment on the fact that I'm alone, even though I've never visited without Bradley since we got married. 
She takes me to the arch. We ride up in the little elevator and stand at the top, looking out over the city and the river. She tells me how when she was little, she used to take cruises on the Mississippi River with her parents and sisters, one of whom was my mother. Aunt Sally and her two sisters would run around the boat talking about the other passengers in Pig Latin. They thought that because they were speaking Pig Latin, no one could understand them. One day they made fun of a greasy man in a suit who turned out to be a fluent speaker of Pig Latin. He threatened to throw them over the rail into the mighty Mississippi. They ran back to their parents and decided to learn French. My Aunt Sally still speaks French very well, and every few years she takes a bus tour through a different part of France. You can always come with me if you want, she says about her next tour. Outside the junction at Effingham, I consider driving the rest of the way in, but decide to check into another red roof inn. It's just like the one in Texas, with the same thin carpeting and the same kind of air conditioner mounted near the window. As I'm pulling down the patterned bedspread so I can lie on the bleach-smelling sheets, I get a call from Kirsten. What's going on with you and Dad? She asks me. Are you getting a divorce? I tell her I'm not planning on it, but that I might be traveling to France next year. In the morning, after I know Bradley will be at work, I turn the key in the lock and walk into my house. It still smells the same. The dishes and glasses are in the kitchen cabinets where I left them. There are a couple of containers drying on the rack next to the sink. The food in the freezer is almost gone. On the phone table is the same stack of papers with a few newer items on top. One of these is the most recent class schedule for the community center. I'm surprised to find the corners on some of the pages have been folded down. It's hard to imagine Bradley reading through the descriptions of ballroom dancing, German, and cooking classes, but it must have happened. I should go to the store and buy food for dinner tonight, and I need to unpack. But first I go to the freezer and get myself a bowl of ice cream. In the living room, I turn on the TV and find it on the channel for the noontime news. The weather report is on. They say there's some cloud cover over our part of the state, but it's expected to blow over. The story you just heard was first published in Cheriton Review. It was read by me, Barrington Smith's Tatchet, with music and sound design by Greg Gordon Smith. <laughs>